This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening. Author meets reader, David Kennedy, A World of Struggle, How Power, Law and Expertise Shape Global Political Economy, with speakers David Kennedy, Ben Fine, Gina Heathcote and Stephen Hopgood, chaired by Jerry Simpson. Recorded on the 14th of January 2016. This event was brought to you by the London Review of International Law. Well, um, welcome to our event this evening. It's, uh, it's lovely to see so many of you here for this uh, Author Meets Readers event, uh, sponsored and run by the London Review of International Law, of which I am an editor, and there are several editors scattered about in the crowd, and the editors have asked me to announce that, that we have a running or rolling program of events. Uh, next week, Sheila Jasanoff is coming to speak at the Old <coughs> uh, Theatre, so I encourage you all to come to that as well. So um, today we're talking about David's new book, A World uh, of Struggle, and we have a slightly unusual format. We're not going to tell you what the book's about. You're going to, have to, you're going to just have to intuit that as we move along. We're going to begin with the three uh, commentators and then have uh, David respond. So let me, let me uh, introduce the protagonists. Um, first of all, uh, ben Fine is Professor of Economics here at SOAS and specializes in uh, Marxist political economy. Uh, he's written, I've just chosen the, uh, the uh, titles that seem most interesting to me, uh, Theories <laughs> of Social Capital, uh, Researchers Behaving Badly, and uh, another book called From Imperialism to Freakonomics. So Ben has written extensively on issues of political economy, and he will be our first speaker. Uh, Gina Heathcote is a senior lecturer here in the law department at SOAS. Uh, on her website, uh, it says her qualifications are a PhD from LSE, an LLM from Westminster, and an LLB from a university called Australia. Uh, <laughs> her two major publications are a feminist analysis of the international law on the use of force, and a forthcoming book called Feminist Dialogues in International Law. Uh, Stephen Hopgood, uh, the far end, is a professor of international relations here at SOAS. He has written extensively on what we might call a Sociology or Politics of Human Rights. He's written an ethnography of Amnesty International called Keepers of the Flame. And his most recent book was called The End Times of Human Rights, a skeptical account of the human rights moment, and one described by my colleague Connor Geerty at the LSE as a disturbing read. <laughs> David Kennedy is the Manley O. Hudson Professor of Law at Harvard and Director of the Institute for Global Law and Policy at the same institution. Uh, Hayden White once said that every field is constituted by what it prohibits or forbids its practitioners to do <coughs> and say. I'd say that David's career has been a form of uh, resistance to what is prohibited from being said. Uh, his books include The Dark Side of Virtue, uh, of Law and War, 
and the rites of spring, a particular favourite of mine because it came out originally in the Texas Law Review <laughs> as spring break, and I remember reading it as an under, undergraduate student at Aberdeen University, and it just sort of opened up a horizon of what could be thought and said uh, in international law and how one might live a life as uh, an international uh, lawyer. David's latest book is A World of Struggle, How Power, Law and Expertise Shape the Global Political uh, Economy, and it's to be published by Princeton uh, in March this year, and it is, as you all well know, the subject uh, of this conversation this evening. So we'll begin uh, with uh, 45 minutes of questions from the three interlocutors, and then David will spend 15 minutes answering all their questions. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll kick off with Ben. Thank you. I'm told I'm, I have to use the microphone. But there we go. Um, well, I'm very glad to be here. I'm very flattered to be here, and to be asked to, to comment on David's book, which I did very willingly and was very glad to read. Uh, but I otherwise feel like a fish out of water. Um, and you need much longer to talk about something you know nothing about than you do to talk about something you do know about. Um, because as a political economist, I have engaged very extensively with many other disciplines. Um, but much less with law, with a major exception of uh, economics and law in terms of launching a critique against uh, Michael Posner, I assume is known to everyone. It would have been interesting to have explored his role as an expert since he was also, also a circuit judge and gave the judgment on the Microsoft uh, Monopoly case. Um, and uh, in this case, I think that uh, uh, as far as Microsoft is concerned, um, if there were experts giving judgments, if they weren't favourable, they might well have been bought out. That's certainly the case of the experts in the economics of Microsoft, with actually consultancies being created in order to be able to prepare. Very unusual for economists to give uh testimony in courts of law, but uh, there are actually now consultancies of professors in order to be able to um, uh, testify on either side of, of the law. So, um, as I said, it's very, very difficult for me to uh, comment on uh, this in terms of your own inner knowledge of your own discipline. Each of us was asked to write down our comments, and uh, to some extent I will f follow them but to some extent I won't, but I'm sure they can be circulated if anyone wants to read the comments as in, in written form. My main difficulty is, is in not having a feeling, a feel for your discipline, inner feel for your discipline. Um, and that's particularly important in terms of understanding what might be taken for granted uh, or what might not be taken for granted. And therefore, why are things absent? Is it because they are so common and well understood within the discipline that they don't have to be said, or is it because they're just entirely overlooked and absent by omission? And that's something I can't 
uh, answer. I know about it within my own discipline. I mean, if I can tell you that experts, Nobel Prize winners, get Nobel Prize for startling understanding that institutions exist. You know, something which would be commonplace, but to say that within economics is, is something quite amazing. Or that when you undertake a transaction, it includes costs. You get a Nobel Prize for saying things like this. Um, and uh, uh, given that you're lawyers, you will know that transactions are indeed very, very expensive to undertake indeed. So all I can do really is not say something about how the book is a contribution within or against, uh, to receive wisdom within law itself. What I can do is say something about the general themes and how I would go about them. Generally, I hope, as it has come out, I hope in my uh, comments, in a constructive and helpful way, developing uh, what uh, is done in the book and might be done by others in light of the book. I have to begin, though, with a major exception, and that is the issue of performativity. Um, I am a long... I don't know how well-known... Again, I don't know how well-known this is to, to lawyers, the notion of performativity. Uh, it would be unknown to almost all economists. Um, but I've basically been battling this in various forms for the last 20 years. Um, I don't think that lawyers, experts or otherwise make the law any more than economists make the economy. Uh, they do reflect upon and interact uh, with the law. At best, I think performativity exaggerates and misdirects our understanding of this relationship between the expert and the practice. At worst, it's an obstacle. Um, uh, and uh, even so, I think that um, whilst performativity has as a, a, a prominent starting point within the book, I actually consider the rest of the book, either implicitly or not, undermines uh, the performativity thesis concerning uh, the way in which experts make the law, or indeed the way in which lawyers make the law, by, I think, very, very appropriate appeal to the structures, the global, the conflict, uh, power and context, all of which tend to undermine, in my view, the performativity thesis, or at least to render it redundant. Let me just remind you this is, uh, that uh, in some respects, I suppose in major respects, the performativity thesis uh, derives from Callon, and one of his arguments was there is no such thing as capitalism, and that capitalism is simply an invention of radicals for the purposes of, of advancing their own critical posturing. And I think that is wrong, and I think I suspect, we can speak for himself, I suspect the, the book thinks that's wrong as well. Um, and uh, we have to take a view about capitalism in order to be able to situate what is the role of law and of its experts. So what I'm, having put that one aside, okay, no, formality is not the way to go. Um, what I want to do is to try and tease out how law is situated in structuring relations, processes, the agencies of capitalism itself. And that's something that I think needs to be done. 
The question is, how do we do this? How do we look at the structures, relations, processes and agencies, structuring capitalism, and how do experts in the law fit into this? And here what I was looking for was a tighter notion of neoliberalism itself. We're actually talking about the role of, of law in the global context of neoliberalism, for which, again, I can only say very, very briefly, my own, my own view is to put considerable emphasis on the role of, I can't talk about it in detail, financialization. I also think it's crucial to see that neoliberalism is not exclusively and certainly not pri even primarily uh, a matter of ideology. It involves a combination of ideology, scholarship and policy and practice which are not necessarily coherent or consistent with one another. And I also think neoliberalism's gone through two different phases, one which is most appropriately called the shock therapy, and the second one, which we might associate with third wayism, in which something is attempted to do, something is being attempted to do, do something about the consequences of the first phase, whilst continuing to sustain uh, the... Um, um, uh, processes particularly of, of, of financialization on, on, on a global scale. In terms of law in this context of neoliberalism, I've tried to be funny here, but you know we all know about the politicians who say, these are my principles, and uh, if you don't like them, I will change them. Uh, and in the case of law, and in particularly the hege hegemony of the United States, I think the principle is these are my laws, and if I don't like them, I will break them. Um, what I really wanted to, to, to bring up then, though, is two other points. How am I doing for time? Am I, I I'm not altogether sure. No, but, uh, no. <laughs> I think you've probably got a, about five minutes. Okay, I'll, I'll, I think I'll be within that. I really wanted to try and situate um, the role of expertise and law in a more comparative uh, uh, situation. Uh, within law itself, again, this is something on which I can't comment, but it may be useful, there are obviously very, very different legal fields, uh, whether international law or otherwise, and that raises the question is of how is that law constructed in different fields, even within international law itself, which is the, the subject matter or the global law, and um, how are experts differentially situated in one set of legal processes uh, as opposed to others, and with what effects. If I take uh, the comparative understanding of experts to other areas than law itself, then I think the position looks very, very different, and that's something we would have to explain. So, for example, I thought of two which are sort of counter-examples in terms of the position of law and particularly of scholars. Uh, one is the field of social welfare. The field of social welfare is dominated by academics who basically idealise the Scandinavian welfare state. Their influence over policy could not be more negligible. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not subject to erosion. It doesn't mean that there aren't others. In, but basically, here's a field that's dominated by people who want a welfare state. Similarly, another area in which I work, that is uh, the, the dietary diseases of affluence. 
I mean, all the experts can tell you very, very clearly about what the problems are in terms of overeating, secondary diabetes, there are more obese people than those starving in the world today. You know, the, the role of experts here couldn't be clearer, and yet their influence over the making of policy and the way the world is, is almost negligible. So this makes it very clear that uh, in order to understand the nature of, of, of expertise, we have to go into comparative study and actually explain why uh, experts have different roles in different uh, situations and different fields. And I suppose drawing to a conclusion then, uh, and drawing on other ways in which I've tried to approach similar but not identical questions, really what I'm after is what would I would call a material culture of law. How is the law constructed in relationship to the material structures, processes, relations and agencies to which it is attached and with which it interacts. And within that, obviously, legal expertise and, and so on does play a role, but it's not a sole role. I've put forward uh, a sort of framework for doing this. How do we understand not only the inner role of the expert, but also their situation uh, in, if you like, uh, society more generally, I've put forward this thing called the 10 C's, that if we want to understand the material construction of a, cons uh, a culture, if you like, the role of experts, we have to recognise that their role is constructed, contradictory, I'm just going to run through the list, closed, it's contested, it's chaotic, it's collective, it's conforming, it's construed, it's commodified, and it's contextual. And these, as I've said, are liable to be very, very different in the context of the experts themselves and the fields in which they work. But this isn't just so at the level of the experts themselves and their own context, but within and through that context itself. And that sort of suggests to me that, and again, I don't know if this is uh, an acceptable conclusion, that you really can't have a general theory of experts either uh, across fields or within the field of international law itself because the way in which the role of experts themselves are constructed, the way they're situated, the impact they have, the interactions they have will be, be themselves different depending on when, whether it's trade law, human rights or war crimes. <coughs> Let me finish that. Um, thanks also to the London Review of International Law, the LSE Law Faculty colleagues here at SOAS uh, uh, for giving me the opportunity and inviting me to come along as David's reader today. Uh, actually, when I arrived at SOAS um, quite some time ago, uh, with not quite a doctorate uh, and a teaching job teaching public international law, one of the things Lynn, as my head of department, asked me to do was to be the co-convener of David's course. So I was a little bit overwhelmed at the time, um, a little bit like I was a bit overwhelmed to kind of then take David's book over the Christmas period and uh, think about what I, how I would like to respond to that. Um, uh, but also through being part of, uh, involved in the International Law and Global Orders course here at SOAS, I did actually have some, I guess I had some early samples of the book, David, I think that there's some kind of real inter integration with some of the work that you did here. And, 
I got to, I, I guess, see some of the early responses to your work through our students' work, who were often also responding to some of these ideas. I wish I could do some, some of the justice to one of some of those old papers. I thought maybe one way to do this would be to bring some of them. I think some of the best ones we saw were amazing. Um, and in reading the book, like the classes, it's a lively, interdisciplinary and challenging account of how we might map the global order uh, with a particular emphasis on how we respond to the work of experts and te uh, techniques or te technical skills in the global order. Uh, by seeing how experts struggle, uh, we can see, uh, this is part of the thesis, that it, we can see the normative dimensions of their work and the political consequences of their work. And I guess for me that's the, the real insight of the book and uh, why I would recommend it to you uh, as, and the way that this helps us better understand international law. But I have some questions, as, as David well knows, um, and I'm going to go through them now. I think there's about seven. Um, I don't know how you're going to do 15 minutes with at least seven questions. But you only get one letter, like <laughs> 10 C's, seven... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I won't really remember. As long as you answer the three gender ones, David. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book's really adventurous methodologically. You can hear that in uh, Ben's response, that it engages with economic dimensions of law or economic dimensions of the global order. Uh, it engages in uh, humanitarian aspects, human rights, trade, different components of the global order and brings them together to make some claims about international law and the global order more broadly. <coughs> but for me, the interdisciplinary uh, value is actually something smaller that you speak to in, in a lesser way in the book, and I hope that you'll speak to some more. And that what I admire about it is, it is that you do describe it as a form of anthropology in the sense that you describe it as, a, as a, an attempt to steer between bird's-eye accounts of the structures of the world system, the operation of the global economy, or the constitution of the global legal order, and ground-level anthropology of people and things as they move the world. And the ground-level anthropology is in your own engagements with experts uh, in the global order. Um, and I really would like to ask you to speak some more to this aspect of it. Um, I think it's novel and, and useful to think that we can understand international law by making visible the experts. And part of the things that the book does is it responds to your own experiences in those place, places and spaces. And I'd ask you to reflect further on what it means for international lawyers to make transnational actors their subjects or sources for their research. Um, and what does it mean for yourself to have been an expert at the Global Agenda Council on Global Institutional Governance? Um, does that make you an insider or an outsider, or is the book partly an attempt to, to be both, to respect that you had that invitation to enter that space, that you, you have access to that space, but that maybe as a critical international lawyer you also step outside of that? But I want to push that point a little further and ask what's lost when we engage with the perspective of insiders. So the book develops, and I, and I quote, an approach to conflict in global affairs from the inside out, foregrounding the knowledge practices of experts in the making and remaking of actors and structures, structures through struggle, and thus proposing a, ca a cartographic model of expert struggle from the perspective of those who engage in it. And this is a real strength of the book, and I think the insight that you garner from that is, is both complex, challenging and powerful, not both, or all three. But what's lost in that process? And I guess that's my key question. And, and not surprisingly, as a feminist 
uh, working on international law, the question is how are structural biases in particular lost when a system is viewed from within? Whether that's race, economic, gender, ableist structures that, are, that perpetuate and create a preference within those structures that can be impenetrable to others and that also um, continue to reward actors and pro projects with similar biases or that are prepared to take on or work within the mantle of those similar structural biases. So I, I, I know that you do address this in the book, particularly in chapter three, uh, chapter three um, when you talk about from the, from the outside. Um, and also again in chapter six when you talk about uh, law and distribution and the, and the role of te technical vocabs. But I want to ask, I guess the answer that you give in those spaces is about some fluidity between the insider and the outsider. And I want to really ask you about that because it seems to suggest there is no outside space for the global order, but that those that are most distanced from the global order and, and its activities and its consequences and its harms, in fact, would feel something impenetrable rather than something fluid. So further on the role of people who are very much at the centre of your book, The World of Struggle, uh, and despite the larger focus on the global order, why start with people, which uh, chapter two, Cartography of People, uh, looks at? Obviously, as international lawyers, we think about states or institutions, maybe multinational corporations. So why start with people? Can we reduce people to, and I, and I do like the phrase that you use, persons with backpacks of legal and other entitlements? I'm th sure his students here will be familiar with the phrase as well. Um, <coughs> But can we reduce this to people and say that these projects are, in, are in, in essence, equal, in that everyone comes with a project and that's just your project, so gender is my project, uh, climate change is somebody else's project. Can we reduce them, uh, or does this, e this potential equalising of all issues taken up in the global order, and as you note, there are many projects that are never actually even taken up to the global uh, order in and of itself, doesn't it risk undermining the value of specific projects? And you're going to tell me, well, that's your project, Gina, but I would say gender <laughs> equality, which is obviously attentive to the needs or to the discrimination and harms meted out on 50% of the global population, is not about a specific project. And we could say the same about environmental issues, uh, for example. And, and equalising projects or persons with projects, I think, comes maybe with some risks. Um, so as I said at the beginning, uh, the inside of the work is about expertise and your approach to ex expertise and the shifting of expertise from the bank background of our thinking as international lawyers, at least they're in the background of our thinking, but not only to bring them to the foreground, but to ask questions about the claims and demands that we make of experts uh, in the global order. And I wanted to ask about a kind of broader movement, I think, within critical legal scholarship that is turning not so much to experts, but I wonder if you saw your work connected to the kind of work on in indicators uh, and, um, and measures that we're seeing. Really fantastic critical work that's looking at the role of indicators and measures. I think Aziza Ahmed has just published something on um, trafficking um, and measures in, within traffic and trafficking under the global order. Similar kind of careful and nuanced reading of how uh, the role of indicators and measures within the international order in and of itself can be attended to with critical work. Now, you don't speak so much to this in the book, but I wonder if this is a part of an important shift for critical legal studies uh, that obviously has kind of its histories in uh, longer stories of critical legal studies. Um, so then I want to ask you about gender. 
and gender expertise and gender experts. Uh, wholly um, selfishly, because as you know, I'm writing a, 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 a chapter on gender experts at the moment, and it struck me. It strikes me. It strikes me when I'm thinking about gender experts that somehow they don't fit your model, because unlike other experts in the international order, order they're not coming with a backpack full of a project. The backpack see through. So their agendas, the ethics, the politics of a gender expert, which is often driven by, not always, but often driven by a feminist ethics and politics, politics is in the foreground from the outset. And what happens when they move into the global order and what we see increasingly with gender experts is the reduction of the political and ethical space for feminism because of technique and expertise. So I can see some similarities and interlocking with the argument you make but it is a space where actually we know full well the kind of political agenda of a gender expert. Not always. Um, some of them are appointed simply because they're women or because they're in a space at a certain time and a gender focal point needs to be appointed. But certainly the gender experts that I've talked to and that I've encountered, their understanding and commitment to feminist politics is, is, very, uh, is immense. Uh, and it's passionate, and they also understand the constrictions with the within the global order they work in, but we know that the consequences of their expertise is often a writing out of the political commitments of their work. So I really wanted to ask you uh, about that. Um, so last of all, uh, the examples of gender experts and their emergence in global <coughs> order somewhat um, tempers my um, acceptance of your final optimism. So the epilogue is actually quite optimistic, tells us to take our projects, take them to international law, and, 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 to, and, I, and, and I admire the optimism, but um, I don't think I share it. And I think that this is because the sense of different, dis, this sense of, the, or the impulse of wanting to change something, <coughs> of to provoke the global order, um, is precisely the type of critical endeavour that has led to lots of projects already coming to the global order and using my own work or my own understandings of gender and the, and the global order as an example. Back in 1915, the women that went uh, to Geneva to draft the peace resolutions, or in 2000, the women in the Wim Women's International League for Peace and Freedom that lobbied and worked with the Security Council to draft Security Council Resolution 1325 and put them in the <laughs> security on the agenda. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so, so these are provoked by a similar kind of instinct that the global order can be mobilised and changed. And what we know from these projects or these backpacks or commitments contained in backpacks <coughs> Uh, and, we, and perhaps in the book the example is the humanitarian projects but what we see is a continual failure of the global order to accommodate projects that were external to its origins so it accommodates gender in a certain way but it doesn't accommodate the feminist <coughs> ethics and policy uh, that I guess maybe inspires much of that work um, or in your case uh, in the study of humanitarian intervention and the intersection of humanitarianism, humanitarianism and militarism, that there is a modern partnership of war, and I quote, quote the book here, and law, that leaves all parties feeling their cause is just and no one feeling responsible for the deaths and suffering of war, suggesting that the global order is less amenable to people with projects than we might hope. 
So I'd like you to ask you to revisit your optimism at the end of the book and maybe tell us a, about it, uh, or me again, and everyone else. <coughs> Thank you. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to uh, read the book. The, it was obviously of great interest to me because I did this ethnography of Amnesty International. So the, I spent a year as an anthropologist inside Amnesty's International Secretariat, which was entirely about the process and part that David describes in the book, which is puzzling through. How do you run a campaign on stopping violence against women? How do you bring different kinds of expertise together. You have people who are more interested, if you like, in the ethical side, people who are lawyers, but lots of people working there are not lawyers. And so that clashing of different kinds of expertise <coughs> is something which um, made uh, uh, reading the book extremely interesting for me. Also, I'm a non-international lawyer, and so reading David's account of the way international law works was extremely refreshing for me. I don't know whether if I was an international law student, I'd necessarily be very happy with David's conclusions about how the law works. There is no answer really to what makes law binding. There is no recourse to natural law particularly. What you have is law as a particular way to wage struggles and there are other ways to wage those struggles and you just keep waging the struggle. Law can be strategically helpful in some cases, it's probably not helpful in other sorts of cases. Someone like me who's a political scientist looking at law and thinking that law looks a lot like politics most of the time, this was a very refreshing thing um, to read. So this is a very ambitious book. There's a huge amount in it, both the theory of the law in relation to economics, political economy, markets, and then this more um, uh, radical theory of the law in relation to human rights and IHL. So I'm just going to raise a few of the things that occurred to me. I felt very much like a social scientist reading the book. So when you, when you slightly ducked the defining an expert question earlier on, <laughs> I found myself thinking, oh, I'm going to struggle with this as we go through. Uh, and I think to some extent I did. So let me, uh, I don't know whether I'll speak for 15 minutes. I only have uh, two or three major points I want to highlight. The first one is this question, well, we'll start with the backpacks. Okay, I, I'd like, I'll ask Gina later about why feminists have transparent backpacks because my sense of these backpacks was whatever project you have you try to advance it in the world and you reach into your backpack and you bring out whatever you think will work and sometimes that's the law and sometimes it's a really terrible picture of somebody who's been treated extremely badly and sometimes it's a documentary and sometimes it's a political campaign or be you know there's all you can bring all these things over your backpack. The problem with this backpack idea is is that the people who carry these backpacks are somehow already constituted. And then, so they come into there as their experts and they use their strategic tools to try to um, um, uh, gain traction and, and um, achieve a policy change or uh, some kind of um, uh, political victory. But where do these people come from? Where do these experts come from? How are they constituted? How does the stuff in their backpacks get in their backpacks? Why do they have that stuff in their backpacks? So I wanted to push David a little bit more on, if you like, where these experts come from, whether they're a class of global rulers, where did they go to university, did they all go to the same universities, did they go through the same socialisation process? Um, so what, what makes these experts believe the things they believe in? So, and and my, my feeling was sometimes 
David will, would start, if you like, with an already constituted expert who already believes in certain things, has certain skills, is com committed to a certain view of the world. I wanted to know where that view of the world came from. Uh, and that relates to a question about, if you like, the structure um, of struggle. And both Ben and Gina, in different ways, <coughs> looked at that structural question. Because there's a lot of agency in this book. There's a lot of experts struggling with each other and trying to um, uh, um, uh, puzzle through things, trying to make things happen. But I found myself wanting to be a bit more structural. Are they, in some sense, the creatures of certain normative and material structures which surround them? So it's not a surprise that you would get certain experts arguing for certain things. And it's also not necessarily a surprise, and this is one of David's really interesting big questions at the outset, is lots of these experts say inequality is a problem, and then they carry on doing things which replicate inequality. For me, that wasn't so much a surprise, because of course, in all sorts of ways, they're creatures of a set of ideas that already, if you like, possess them, and they have a particular kind of socioeconomic position. So there's certain things which might be unthinkable or out of the box for their worldview. And that's not really about the expertise they have, that's about where they came from and how they were socialised. So I wanted a bit more on that kind of um, structure. And I also wanted, uh, I sort of found myself looking for a little bit more on how authority is constructed in the first place. I think this goes to some of the things that Gina was maybe getting at too. Why do certain people have authority? Why do we listen to lawyers? Now, why do we listen to international lawyers? They dominate a lot of human rights talk, but why is it international lawyers we listen to? Is this because they present their expertise in a particular way? Is it because they claim that they have a unique access to a body of theory, of course, which is a case precedent, which is far too complex for most of us to master? You know, the whole idea you'd represent yourself in court, you know, lawyers would laugh at you about this because it's all much too complicated. But is it really much too complicated? Do we just not have the time to do it? So what gives lawyers their special expertise in this, uh, in this sort of um, realm? Why, did, why, why do we see them as authoritative? Why, ben was rightly very critical of many economists. Why do we see economists as particularly authoritative? So again, some reflection on why do we value certain kinds of authority? And does this create a less than level playing field when it comes to um, political struggle? I also, this is back to my uh, justification, my uh, definition question, wasn't clear about who were, was an expert. And by the end of the book, I found myself with a long list of people who, who seemed to be experts. They could be politicians, they could be scientists, they could be lawyers, they could be, uh, you know, what ties all of them together? Ben was sceptical about a, a, a sort of unified theory of expertise, and maybe that's the right answer, that there's no unified theory of expertise. But I, I wasn't clear by the end that there really was something that tied all these people together. And I thought of two or three kinds of expertise which I, I couldn't really fit within in the discussion in the book. One was the sort of the, the moral expertise side of human rights, um, which seems to me to be a very important aspect of human rights advocacy work. And now we might say this just isn't expertise. We're talking about something very specific. But many human rights advocates will talk about themselves as, as if they have a special insight or special knowledge into suffering, the causes of suffering. They may well have witnessed things, they may well have done their prison visits, they may well have listened to torture accounts, 
they have a certain kind of witnessing or moral <coughs> expertise which they try to deploy in arguments in much the same way others would deploy other kinds of expertise. You know, listen to me, trust me, I'm right because I've been there and I've seen this suffering. So I was interested in some reflection on, on that. I also found myself thinking about climate scientists who have a very specific kind of expertise which is very different, for example, from political judgment or legal judgment. Most of us cannot replicate what these climate scientists do. They have a very sophisticated, narrow understanding of physical processes. So in an argument, scientists, of any of you who argue with climate scientists, know that they go nuts very quickly because it seems obvious to them as a problem and obvious what the solution is. And then, not surprisingly, we can't make this stuff happen. We disagree. There are collective action problems, for writing, conflicts of interest. So it's not enough to listen to those experts because, of course, we live in a political social space. We disagree and argue about benefits, costs, and, and what should be done. But I wondered how they fit in. Those very particular kind of scientists who, experts who would say, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay? I know what we're talking about because I've studied several uh, hundreds of millions of years of, of geological data. You don't know what you're talking about. And you don't have anything to come... You know, have you done this research? That's very different from a political expert who sort of says, well, I think it'll come out, you know, advising Donald Trump, saying, you know, I think this demographic will lose and this demographic will win, but there's a certain political expertise in there about how people vote and how demographics line up. We can engage in that conversation much more easily than one scientist. Okay, a couple more, um, a couple more points. Um, I've already made that point, and all authority points I've made. Um, I did... Okay, so maybe maybe I'll just make one more bigger point, um, uh, and then David can respond. Which is, it would have been nice to have some discussion of the whole idea of the role of elites and technocrats as a whole. You know, Davos man is a thing. David starts off by talking about his. I felt somewhat dispiriting Davos experience. That you know, big hopes, and then the committee that David chaired didn't really go anywhere. Uh, within the, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, Davos Man, of course, becomes a symbol for a, a, an elite technocratic managing and, and running of the world. And it would have been quite interesting to think about how elites from all sides are subject to increasing critiques from both the left and the right. Okay, so on the one hand, you have an anti-globalization process, protests, you know, Goldman Banks. Uh, Goldman Sachs and the other banks wreck the world, but then you have to rely on them to try to repair the world because they're the only ones who are supposed to understand how this world works. So most ordinary people feel excluded from that. You have the right critique from Trump and UKIP and others saying, you know, our future is in the hands of unaccountable liberal elites that we can't really get any sort of access to. So not, not so much just that elite struggle and the different sides within that elite struggle, but a general critique of the whole elite struggle, that really there's a huge democratic or accountability deficit that most people can't access. Ben, in his, his original remarks, uh, which he circulated, has some astonishing numbers about the complexity, for example, of American law regulating markets and how they've increased the number of pages of a document regulating American finance has increased exponentially even in the last 20 years. Such that no ordinary person could possibly hope to master this material. So it becomes a closed world that ordinary and has huge implications for ordinary people, but which you can't really access in that way. So that the final thing 
that while this is a world of struggle and it's struggle between elites, what about that broader <coughs> struggle which may well see these elites as part of the problem rather than part of the solution? But anyway, there's a huge amount in there, um, um, lots and lots to get your teeth into, so I do urge you to look at the book. I'm certainly going to assign some of the chapters from my students in the human rights course. Thank you. Well, um, thank you to the three commentators. So you're going to tell us what the book's about, <laughs> uh, and then respond to some of these comments, and you're go going, to, going to stay down here because it's safer, apart from anything else, but uh, we'll, we'll engage I'm in I'm very worried about yeah. that. Um, yeah, so let me say, so first of all, thanks. This is amazing. There's nothing more wonderful than to be read, so, and to be read by thoughtful, engaged um, friends and colleagues is wonderful, so um, thank you to Everyone, thanks to Tree for organizing this, to you guys, to everyone for reading it, and to you all for coming. Um, I, well, let me explain what the book is about uh, a little. Oh, there I am. Uh, <laughs> um, let me explain a little bit about what the book is about, which might be helpful in making sense out of some of the comments and some responses. Um, or at least the book as I see it, and I'm just one reader of it, so maybe this isn't what it's about. But the 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 aim of the book, um, as I saw it, was to first and foremost reframe our understanding of the international situation less as order in the sense of a legal order, or a system in the sense of a political system or a balance of power system, or an economic system, um, than as a terrain of conflict and struggle. That is to try to take down the the automatic thing we go to when we try to say what's going on globally of saying, well, what's the, what, how is it ordered, what's the system, how does it work, and to try to break that down and put the conflicts that are, if you like, within that or something at the center of the story um, and maybe even detach ourselves from the idea that there is an order or a system or whatever or say that, or at least come to the conclusion that affirming that there's a system might be a tactic in struggle rather than a precondition or a context for the struggle. Saying there's a system is saying you can do some things and you can't do other things, and it's the kind of thing people would say if they wanted to prevent you from doing something that didn't fit with the system. So that was the first idea. Um, that's why the title of the book is A World of Struggle, because the whole idea is it's a world of struggle. Um, and I developed a kind of model of struggle that would try to talk about conflict without talking about it as an aspect of a system or a component of an order, but something people do. So where is the stability? I mean, people obviously aren't struggling all the time. You're all just sitting there passively. I'm chatting. There's no struggle here, really. I mean, so, and, and here the idea is struggle is an observable, stability rather, is an observable phenomenon that one could speak about as a past conflict that had been won by somebody and lost by somebody. Um, so the Permanent Five and the Security Council are an effect of a struggle, but they don't have to keep having a Second World War to stay being the P5, they just get to keep being the P5. 
Um, or outcomes of a struggle that happen that are successfully asserted. Somebody says, this is how it all ended, and this is what you have to do, and you don't have to struggle over it again. So, of course, not all struggles have to be undertaken every time in order to be struggling. They have to be undertaken in some way uh, and at some time, and people have to accept the results of the struggle as continuing to be not worth struggling over again. Now, you could call those elements of stability institutions, or you could call them an order, you could call them a system, you could call it the United Nations. If you wanted to, you could call it capitalism. We live in capitalism, which is the result of a series of historic struggles about what the system should be like. But my proposal in the book is not to do that, to try to see if we can speak about these things without trying to name the outcomes as institutional structures in some way, to back off the structure part of social science in some way, and for a couple of reasons. One reason is to say calling it a system or calling it an institution overestimates its stability very often and underestimates the potential that it could be arranged in a different way. Um, and so I'd rather, if I got the chance, overestimate the potential to organize it in a different way. Um, and secondly, because uh, calling these things institutions or systems is very often something people do with a motive, either a motive to say, you should listen to me because I'm the person who is the articulative Mandarin of that system, or, or you should have this role because that's where you fit into the system, or I should have this role because that's where I fit into the system. So if we could get off the system kick and off the capitalism kick and focus on the motivations that people have in making claims about that, we might see something and more possibilities than we might otherwise see. Now, maybe we won't get all the way. Sometimes it's very useful to say this is a system. I'm not, but I don't think systems really exist. I think they're interpretations, and the book is an effort to try to foreground the motivations and the struggles that go into us to making those interpretations um, conventional. Now, if we're not going to have institutions or systems as the agents of the operation, that's how I get to people. Uh, because, I mean, people, right? So it's never a state that does something. Well, there's this wonderful New Yorker cartoon one time, a long time ago, a guy sitting at a table like this, and he had a little sign in front, and he was sitting there, and the sign said, hi, I'm Belgium. It was this weird idea. Of course, he's not Belgium. He's some guy, Bob, you know, Smithcuff. And he represents Belgium. So he's doing something in the name of Belgium. And it's always like that. And when we talk about international affairs particularly, we sometimes lose track of that. Uh, that saying you're Belgium is a way of entitling yourself to some things, preventing yourself from having some things, situating yourself as a public, not a private actor, saying you're General Motors is a thing to say. And somebody else might say, but no, you're just Bob Smith, the CEO of General Motors. You're not General Motors. I'm the shareholders. I'm General Motors. Those are things people struggle over. Uh, and so I wanted to put the emphasis in our understanding of the global on the actual humans who are involved, rather than the names that they gave themselves and the cloaks that they draped around themselves to make them seem bigger than they really are uh, in one or another way. Um, and I then say, of course, that doesn't mean they're all equal. 
they and that's where this backpack idea came in. I love the idea that you guys all picked up on the phrase backpack. <laughs> so the idea is people come to one another with a backpack of powers and vulnerabilities, and everybody's backpack has different powers and different vulnerabilities, and they have different access to it, and they're not equal even slightly. Um, and we wouldn't want to make the same mistake about people that we make about states of imagining that they're all the same just because they have the same name people. They're obviously very different, and they're very differently situated, and so then one should talk about that. Um, okay. So that's the background frame. The second thing the book tries to do is to say, all right, in all these struggles, what am I interested in? I'm particularly interested in the role of knowledge work, um, would be one way of thinking about it, in struggle. The way in which people do things with knowledge that has effects. So it's working with ideas to bring something about. You know, it's a kind of power knowledge thing there. Um, uh, a great deal of what goes on in the world is argument and assertion. Even when we sometimes don't see it as an argument or as an assertion, we see it as an exercise of power. So an example here would be off of his head. So you could say off of his head is an exercise of power, and then the axe comes down and chops off the guy's head, uh, let's say. But in fact, it's also an assertion. I am now the person who is entitled to get you to do this thing with an axe, and it becomes real when the person chops off the person's head. But that's not the end of the story. That also is itself sending a message and is communicating something about what happens if you get in the way of this guy. You might get your head chopped off, um, and so on. So there's a, a whole series of communicative dimensions to things and assertive dimensions and articulative dimensions to things that we normally think of as power in action. And I try to back away from saying that's power, because power is like phlogiston. It's very hard to say where it is or who's got it or if we have a little bowl of it here. It's, it's much more interesting to try to figure out how it works in and among people that people assert that they have a power and that assertion becomes effective to another person. Um, so I'm interested in the practical dimensions, and I know that's not all words. I mean, the United States flies B-52s over South Korea to make some points. Um, that's a communicative, articulative act that's not under, it's undertaken with a plane um, and a newspaper, not undertaken with, with words. But, but anyway, there's something communicative there, and I want to try to put those things um, at, the, at the forefront of, of the story. And it seems to me that the combination of reason and force that are involved in every bit of knowledge work is impossible to untangle. You can't ever get to the bottom, as a social scientist, of whether or not somebody did something because they were persuaded by the reasons, or they were impressed by the authority or threat of the speaker. It's almost impossible to figure that out, and why try? that it, it, it would it'd be more interesting, it seems to me, to acknowledge that all these performative communicative acts have mixed together an element of reasoning and an element of threatening and persuading and seducing and intimidating that go somehow together and to try to put them in a, a single kind of um, space. 
So what is that space of knowledge work that combines reason and force in this um, hard to pull apart way? And here, I mean, I wish I'd never used it, but I, the unfortunate word expertise does an enormous amount of work in the book. So, um, and I was flabbergasted to discover when I was almost finished that there's a whole academic field of expertise studies I'd never heard of. And here I was writing a book about expertise, but if you go to Amazon and you put in expertise, you've got all these people already. Right? So I thought, oh no, what am I saying that's different from what they're saying, and I need to figure that out in some way. Um, but the, my thought in using the word is to read it in the widest possible sense. So what I really mean is sort of the knowledge work of rulership, whoever does it. I don't have in mind a special class of people, particularly, although I do look at particular people who I know, because uh, you have to start your anthropology somewhere. Um, and I don't have the idea that it's all specialists or technocrats. In some way, all people are specialists and technocrats. And here, Gina, I think your work on, the, on in treating gender <coughs> advocates, let's say, as experts who are engaged in a kind of expertise and are exercising power to the extent that they are able to do that in a situation is exactly work along the line I have in mind. That I don't see them as outside the global situation. I don't see them as non-experts. I don't see them as speaking truth to power, where power is technocracy and they bear witness. So I don't see them as... An, I just see them as another group of people with a, in a particular situation with a particular kind of, ex of expertise exercising a particular kind of power if they can. Uh, and it's really interesting to study them that way. Uh, and in some institutions as to some issues, there are lots of effects of what it is that feminists, activists, and gender people um, have been able to accomplish. And in others, there are all kinds of things that don't happen. Uh, or bad effects that happen, or whatever. So that's that's the idea, that it's not just the Davos people. It could be lots of different people. In fact, that a lot of times in the book I talk about, you know, like my grandmother's an expert in a lot of things and has a lot of ideas about how private law works when she travels. And, you know, that she's <laughs> struggling with the shopkeeper. She's got some knowledge about that. So I don't want to try to privilege a certain set of group people and say they're the ones who are worth studying, and the other people are not worth studying. I'm trying to develop a way of studying the knowledge work that everybody who participates in the reproduction of good and bad things at the global level is undertaking. Um, and so to do that, I focus on a kind of activity that I call background work, um, in which I, I which is very simply put, interpreting the context in a way to guide decision. You look around and say, this is the situation, so we ought to do this. We're trying to figure out what to do. We look around, here's what's going on in Syria. Let me tell the president, I think we ought to do this. Here's what's going on in Iowa. I think we ought to do that. And you ought to do the following thing. That's a very familiar kind of thing for experts to do. But it's also what the president does, and it's also what the voters do. So I think that everybody is involved in this activity of figuring out what to do on the basis of an interpretation of the context using some set of knowledge that they have. And so I am looking for a unified theory of expertise that would be applicable across a wide range of domains stated in that very general way. And that's why, to answer um, Stephen, I guess your point, I'm not trying to develop a theory of the specificity of the technocrat. I'm trying to develop 
uh, account of the activity of people trying to figure out what to do and, and get other people to go along using knowledge that they might have in one or another way. Um, now, that said, a comparative account is right, and Ben is completely on point to say different backpacks are different and different knowledge works are different, and the vernacular of the gender expert and the vernacular of the financial expert and the lawyer and the human rights person is different, and I begin to sketch out some ideas about that, but it would be a huge amount of um, sociological work to try to figure that out, and I think the indicator's work is a is a good example of that. So I'm a big fan of Aziz Ahmed's book, actually, um, of trying to, and, and Andrew actually has done a lot of, of trying to figure out with some specificity how does the vernacular of a particular group of people in a particular location constrain what blind spots and biases, what possibilities are opened up, what things are not seen as a result of the way in which they're approaching it as compared with somebody else. Um, but there's also boundary work and struggle among all those expertises, and that's part of what's going on in the struggle, which expert group ought to have control over what. And actually, Shula Jazanoff has written a lot about that, and she's, that's what this talk in two weeks is going to be actually about, I think, um, particularly about the very special um, nature of scientists, Steve. So, and are they really different? And if they are different, how different? Um, and or are they in a continuum with these other kind of experts who, that we've been talking about? Okay, then the last thing to say before I do some more specific responses is just how does one get at that? How might one study the knowledge work of people in struggle in the global situation? And I propose to do it not exactly in the normal way. So a normal way would be to focus, if you're going to talk, look at knowledge work, on ideas. Where do these ideas come from? How are these people formed? And then to imagine people enacting their ideas. So they learned ideas. And now their ideas, you know, mechanically, I'm enacting my, I'm an economist who believes in markets, therefore I have to do the following kind of thing. And I, I'm very interested in that, and I've done work like that, um, and, and so I'm for doing more work like that. But in this book, I'm for trying to do something, <coughs> which is to say, let's not focus on their ideas and imagine that their ideas are controlling their behavior and that the persuasiveness of their ideas is, or the legitimacy of their speaking is what gives them power. Let's focus on their practice. On the practice of argument and assertion and its effects. And so in order to get at that, I introduce three um, basic ideas. One is focusing on distributive practices. So how do people get things for themselves and keep other people from having them using argument and assertion in the global Order. What is what distributes? How does inequality get arranged and rearranged? How are rents invented and allocated in a global production chain? Who gets the money? Uh, and what do they pull out of their backpack, often in terms of a legal entitlement, but not only, in order to make sure that they win and the other guy loses? What what's the distributive practice of these experts? Not what are their arguments, whether they're good arguments or bad arguments, but how does their argumentative work distribute something? status, money, uh, uh, power, or whatever. Um, and in distributive work, secondly, what's the role of articulation, performance, argument, assertion? I've said a little bit about that. And then how does yielding to that 
affect or confirm the distribution. So this idea that when you assert something, the other person has to yield. When you say off with his head, the other person has to say, well, I wasn't going to do it, but now that you say that, I guess I will do it. Or I'd really like more of the gains from trade here, and I have the following 14 reasons. And you had 14 reasons why you ought to get it. Like, well, you know, okay, you can have it. So there's a moment of yielding that's not, I don't think, the moment of being persuaded. It's something goes on, and one can study that moment as the uptake of the power of the articulator and try to figure out the practice of assertion and the experience of yielding as being the space where power is practiced in the global world. So that's the, the idea. Um, the last thing would be on technocracy. Um, the main example that I use in All of Them Come Out of Law, that's what the book is, uh, or and about development economics, that's what the book is about. Um, and studying these things, uh, it has left me with some hypotheses about some aspects of contemporary knowledge work in those fields that might be subjective, suggestive for knowledge work in lots of other fields. And the, and the idea is something about modern life is different from life in other times, it certainly as I lived life in other times, it was really different. Um, and, the, and the difference is, uh, has to do with the sensibility with which experts and people doing knowledge work act. Um, and so the observations are these. With globalization of everything has come the legalization of everything. So more and more things are undertaken in the articulative language of law and other associated uh, fields. A. B. With the legalization of everything has been an increase in the pluralism of law, its undecidability, contradictoriness, and plasticity. So that something odd has happened. Uh, discourse has become more powerful by becoming and more ubiquitous at the same time as it's become less decisive. Now, you think, wow, how did that happen? You think that a discourse should get more powerful as it becomes more clear and obvious. But actually, this one became more powerful as it became less clear and less obvious. That makes sense from a strategic point of view because people would have a lot of strategic interest in having a discursive frame for doing things that kind of was clear, but not that clear, uh, in which everybody could think that they had an entitlement and the other guy was wrong. I mean, that'd be very useful. If you could get everybody in the whole world to share a language that could be used both for starkly opposed positions and for the development of compromise rationalizations, you'd have a strong language of power that could be very useful in struggle. But from a stepping back and looking at the point of view, it seems really counterintuitive. And one of the things that's interesting is that if you talk to people who are sophisticated players in global struggling, and I would say from feminist analysts and human rights people to Davos people, they get that. So they understand that it's, and they assert both the clarity of their own argument and the unclarity of the materials out of which they're arguing simultaneously. Uh, so there's a kind of sophisticated disenchantment and also robust faith in the materials that are used for the practices of power in contemporary society that seems interesting and maybe historically different from what happened before. 
Now, is that technocracy? So, uh, it's a particular kind of knowledge work coming to occupy a larger and larger domain of the space of decision. Uh, but I don't think, I don't see it as the triumph of a particular class of people who need to be controlled by something else. So it's not that technocrats have taken over in Brussels and we need democracy or politics to get it back. This, my picture is more dystopian. The picture is one in which there is no outside to this mode of articulative power. It turns out that the things we think of as being on the outside, and you guys in your comments propose a couple of them, ethics would be one, the ethical, the victim position, and so forth. Um, the political would be another one that should be a democratic or other authoritarian check on the runaway power of technocrats. When you look at them, they turn out to be other people with backpacks making power claims of a variety of kinds in which they both have confidence and don't have confidence. So, I mean, it seems to me, Gina, your work on the power practices of feminists, one of the things that's interesting about it is, although you're right that they are in non-powerful positions, I don't think they're, as you described them, on the outside. In this looking in, they're doing what they can with what they got in uh, the world. So, uh, in in my story, the it's a better understanding of the trials and tribulations of the current moment to focus on the ubiquity of sophisticated and disenchanted knowledge practices than to demonize the specificity of a particular class of people and to try to check them with some other class of people who are supposedly not somehow infected with the virus of technocracy, but have the purity of politics or economics or something else. And that just, and in that sense, um, the hypothesis is that um, knowledge struggle in the modern situation has as its ethical consequence a loss of agency, or another way of putting it would be an agency of no agency. So that th there are no you know, Archimedean points on which an agent could stand in an outside or alternative position to the knowledge practices of power. You just got to get in there with your backpack and do what you can do. Okay, so now that was my story about the book. A very quick response to the really wonderful comments, some of which I've basically tried to organize the general story to respond to, and then I'll stop. Um, so, um, Gina, let me start with you. Um, thank you. Um, on gender and feminism, I think I spoke a little bit about that, and on the inside and the outside. Um, uh, on the uh, on the question of structural bias. Um, and are those issues lost when we look at it from an inside point of view? My sense is it would be terrible if that was true because I'm really interested in structural bias and I try to focus on unequal relations and their reproduction in the global order. I use the center periphery model as one way to get at that. There might be some other ones. Um, I think that the, the problem is like worse than you think. So that if you look at it from the inside and you think there's no outside, then the bias problems are reproduced in the 
thing and through its own ongoing operations, they're not an aspect of some system you can set over there and then from the outside try to change. It's an ongoing process of the reproduction of bad outcomes. Um, and I think that, that, that it's very optimistic um, to imagine that there's an alternative space one could stand in, in a relationship to this practice, order, system, whatever it is that we're describing. Um, of course it happens that some projects get de-radicalized as they get taken up. And it's really interesting to try to figure out, and actually, Ben, you said a little bit about this in your, in your written remarks, what happens to heterodox thinking in the system? Do heterodox experts and mainstream ex experts have a different destiny? And are disciplines set up in a way that excludes some views or only takes them in, in a becalmed way? And I think that's true, and that does happen. It's a very interesting phenomenon to study inside the reproduction of unfair situations at the global level. Um, is it an optimistic book? I actually think it was kind of a downer book. Um, the epilogue is there because you have to end on a up note. But uh, basically, the, the book says the problems are more entrenched than you thought, the reforms are less promising than you hope, and there's no Archimedean lever to stand on. Um, and, you know, they, all we can do is have a call for the vertiginous embrace of unknowing the irrationality <laughs> of the current situation. Um, That's not what the blurb says. <laughs> <laughs> We're remaking a juster world. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write the blurb. <laughs> um, Steve, um, thank you very much. Um, I, I, so I don't think experts are a special, <coughs> special class whose origins can be traced. I have a kind of broader conception of that, but I'm very interested in the different anthropology of different modes of knowledge practice as it's, expression, as it's expressed and allowed to be expressed. Um, do you, you talk about where these people come from and is there a structure? I think I've said that I'm, uh, I'm agnostic and about the existence of structures and think of them including structures like class identities and words like capitalism as things people say for a reason rather than facts about the world. And I try to break that down in some way, useful as those sometimes are. Um, you ask about ethical authority and the voice from the outside. I, I don't see that as foundationally different. I see that as a type. Uh, and everybody in human rights back practice that I know knows, you know, you got to go find the victim who's got a good story. and. It's the baby seals, and you need the picture, and you know, baby ugly animals don't work. You even very cute baby ugly animals don't work as well as baby seals. All that stuff is a practice of asserting ethical authority. Um, that's an expert practice that you have to learn how to do if you want to be a professional in that world. And your own anthropological work is exactly about that. So I, I don't see that as a as anything but another kind of expert uh, power practice. Um, the one thing I do did want to say something about that you raised, though, and then I'll stop with it and move on to Ben, is where, you asked, where does the authority and the power come from? Uh, and you know, is there the people, why do we listen to law? Something like that. So I, I think there's some interesting things to be said about how the legal vernacular has come to be useful to a lot of different people, including the ways in which they think other people think about it. So there's some kind of elaborate mirroring thing that goes on there. There's a lot that could be said about that. But I'm, in general, as a social scientist, um, 
allergic to the idea that the power or the authority or the legitimacy comes from somewhere and precedes its exercise. So an example here would be, does the state have power before it exercises jurisdiction, or is the state, a very Kelsenian idea, the sum of all the jurisdictions that it effectively exercises? And I'm just, in that big divide in the social sciences, I'm more drawn to the second idea, that we know power as it's exercised. Power isn't something in the refrigerator waiting to be drawn down, and neither is legitimacy. Legitimacy is an effect that occurs through the yielding of another to an assertion. It's not a thing you had before you used it. Before you used it, you had a prediction. That's all you had, a sociological prediction that probably you'd get away with it because the other person would yield. And you might have a pretty good prediction, and we can say a lot about that, but it's not a thing that, whose origin could be traced. It's a, an effect of earlier struggles, and it's an effect that is made real in current struggles. Lastly, Ben. Um, uh, so you're in a really different discipline, um, and I appreciate your coming. Um, but so I, I, a lot of these things I've I've said something about. But I want to focus on um, on two things particularly that I think maybe would be interesting um, that have to do with the difference between law and economics. So um, you have this idea, and you called for it in your remarks here, of a material story of the economy or of the political arrangements that law, you said, attaches to in some way or is on. And in your written remarks, you talked about there's making markets, which is something that happens in the real world, for crying out loud, and then there are the discourses through which they're interpreted, which are interesting, may have a little bit of an effect, but are basically marginal to the real thing, which is the markets. Now, you have some beef with some guy in Edinburgh named Mackenzie that you brought in here, had to use the word performative. I, I don't know, that guy. But anyway, so I don't know what he meant. But in my, in, in, in my world, the, um, I, I try not to imagine that there's a real material story on top of which there's an interpretive story. And I think that just may be a difference between me. Economists and law, but it's not only that. So, uh, and, and I think here the question is how do there would be two strands to get at that? One would be how do we imagine the desiring subject of economics? You know, the homo economics or something. There's a whole economic tradition, so I'm with it, of the Veblen institutionalist tradition of trying to understand that sociologically and culturally. Uh, that it's not a material thing on top of which there's interpretation. It's a cultural and institutional and historical thing. Um, and in that construction, there would be knowledge work. So I agree with you. The idea here is not that Sen or Krugman or Stiglitz or whoever is some Machiavellian person deciding everything. That If that's the idea, and maybe this guy McKenzie thinks that, he's crazy. But the idea that an economy is, is an interpretive outcome of, or an interpretive observation about a series of cultural knowledge practices that people are undergoing, I would want to try to affirm if I knew anything about economics. And the, the second way into that would be, it's very typical of the difference between law people and economics people. So 
And a law person might look at the economy and say the economy is a real thing and we come on top of it to regulate it. And there are law people who do that. They imagine these economies operate some. But there's another legal tradition that I would associate myself with that focuses very powerfully on the extent to which things in the economy are actually legal institutions, labor, capital, so forth, uh, property, credit, risk, all that stuff, um, and also comparative advantage, and also um, productivity are the, not just the, the <coughs> either are legal arrangements that could be put together one way or the other and have been put together in different societies and at different times in different ways, but are also the effect of legal arrangements. So yeah, this is a baseline problem. Do you try to understand the global economy by understanding the plasticity of its base? Or do you take its base as having a kind of reality and try to figure out what you could do about that by mobilizing the resources of power and authority? And I'm in the tradition that tries to foreground the plasticity and constructed nature of the base, both of the desiring subject and of the economic um, institutional arrangements um, themselves. And that leads me to my second point, then, about things you said. So you're, you talk about neoliberalism um, and financialization as being strongly powerful um, things to be understood in the contemporary situation. I agree for sure about that. Um, and I agree with you that neoliberalism has been misunderstood. It's not the absence of the state. It's a different kind of state. It's a different relationship with regulation um, and so forth. It's a bundle of practices and it's a bundle of interpretations that have persisted even as the strongest form of its ideological justification has been criticized. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Um, it, but I don't think it's the main thing going on. It's a thing going on. And the same thing I would say would be, it's an ideological thing, a political thing, an expert thing. Um, so also financialization. So you write, the book acts as if financialization has never happened. But I would say you act as if financialization is a thing that could happen. So it's not a thing that could happen. It's an interpretation. It's an interesting interpretation. I'm into it as an interpretation. Maybe everything now is financialized. But people have been saying that since the 19th century, and they've been saying it in the 20th century. There are a whole series of institutional arrangements. You know, Glass-Steagall was taken apart and so forth. And now everything is totally different, because the magnitude of this is bigger than the magnitude of that than it ever was. People have said things like that about the global I mean, the steam engine was supposed to be a thing like that, and the telegraph was supposed to be a thing like that, and the radio, and the nuclear bomb, and now the default credit swap. All of these things were legal and other kinds of arrangements, and they were supposed to take us into an entirely new era, and it might turn out from the horizon of history that that will be very significant. But it also might be something about the rise and fall of states that's significant, or the experience of China that's significant, or some butterfly somewhere that's significant. It seems to me to claim for financialization such a strong marker of the modern is a thing people do for a reason. They say financialization is the current reality because they want to get Bernie Sanders elected. I would like to get Bernie Sanders elected. And if saying financialization is the new reality will help, I'm totally happy to do it. But it's a motivated thing to say. It's not uh, a fact 
about the world is an argument about the world. Uh, and, and I see you as a person with a particularly hefty backpack arguing for that thing, and I applaud your effort if it helps Bernie. Um, but I'm skeptical of the logic element that often goes with those kind of claims. That neoliberalism, if you understood it really properly, or financialization, if you understood it really properly, or globalization, if you understood it really properly, or capitalism, if you understood it really properly, has a certain kind of logic and is a certain kind of machine. And since I'm much more of a humanist than that, I see the situation is much more plastic and open to struggle and contestation by feminists and others than that. And although I think there's some strong predictive things one could say about the claims bankers make and their likely uptake, um, I don't think that they lucked out and found themselves as the power drivers of a machine. I just think they're particularly privileged people and we could deprivilege them in the situation would be um, otherwise. Okay, well, I think that's enough for us to chat about. Um, let's chat. Um, all right, so I think we'll, uh, we'll throw it out to the crowd. And why don't the three commentators just weigh in when they see a, a, a glimpse or an opportunity. But I'll take, I'll take questions in groups of two or three. Tor, why don't you kick us off? Um, two, two points, well not points, questions, um, observations, thoughts. Uh, the first one, an immediate reaction to your reaction, David, to, to Ben's comments. Well, it strikes me that you're, in, in responding to Ben, you're um, overplaying the difference between law and economics, and, and the distinction that you're, the difference that you're identifying has much more to do with your own discursive approach to, to, to the political to both fields. And, and, um, and Ben's materialist Marxist approach. Um, because within law there are certainly Marxist legal scholars who, who would take a very materialist approach and not um, and, and differ with you in your description of that. So this flows on then to a second point of your description, your, your science, is of course without the benefit of having read the book, but you started off by, by describing the world as we find it, which is we have, uh, there's no, no systemic logics, there's nothing called capitalism. Uh, capitalism is an entirely discursively produced thing. Uh, but we have experts, and we can all be experts. Your, your grandmother, Gary Simpson, Larry Sand, Summers, Summers, that's the one, etc. And uh, and we have we each have our backpacks, but uh, we have different different things in our backpacks. And, and you explicitly said different um, uh, uh, um, power, different reaches to power. Uh, some of us can, can can draw in more power in our expertise than others. Um, but this seems very Rawlsian of you in, in that you take this asymmetrical distribution of power, power relations as, as given. Uh, it seems very ahistorical, right? What, so where, where did this asymmetrical distribution of power relations, these different backpacks come from? Uh, presumably Ben, and, and like I say myself, would, would argue that, that there, there is some historical uh, systemic processes or, 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 or logics that led to this distribution. Um, 
but where, where did it come from in the first place? Um, so uh, we'll, we'll take Andrew's question and then and then David can respond to them both at once. Okay, thank you, thank you to everyone for a fantastic panel. So I had a, a question, uh, partly comment, partly question about this issue of, of structure and system. And I um, so this move of trying to tell the story without naming the system, uh, I totally understand that. Seeing 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 any naming of the system as a motivated act trying to tell that story I think that's I totally understand that and so as a result you move to I think what you said was so what's left I have people so you, you tell a story about people did you do this thing as a kid you know here's a church and here's a steeple and you open up and there's a <laughs> <laughs> it had a big impact, big impact made a big impact on me <laughs> the church or the people <laughs> well, um, so I guess so uh, two things it seems to me that you um rule out two things when you do that. So one is, if you rule out talking, uh, talking about systems, you, you're not uh, allowing yourself easily to talk about the ways in which knowledge works produce systems. So acts of knowledge work, you know, knowledge work produces systems. <coughs> you, you, so, so that seems to me to be a difficult thing because, because actually I think your argument starts from the premise that it does so in a way. That's why you're interested in it. Um, and the second thing is, I guess, to reflect what Stephen said, is that you, once you move to people, then it becomes harder for you to talk about the ways in which the knowledge work produces the people themselves, which I know is important to you, but it just becomes harder to talk about that. Um, and so that led me to the question of, uh, I guess, other concepts like practices, in a different sense from the way you're using it, but practices or assemblages or rationalities, they're concepts which have been... Which have been I guess used to try and avoid all of those things. In other words, to talk about, um, to show how subjects are constituted by larger structures while at the same time keeping hold of the plasticity of those structures. And also, I guess, it avoids those concepts of trying to avoid at least this material ideational structure agency divide as well, because they're all materialized interpretations, and that's the right. That's the, that's so I, I guess I wanted to ask you about those other intermediate sort of concepts or alternative concepts and how useful you think they are. Can I ask one very quick other question, which is a separate question, and maybe it's a bit unfair. But So I'm imagining that the experts, we're all experts, so the experts are part of the audience of your book. What, what's, what's the anticipated reaction of the expert to, to this book? Buy a second copy. <laughs> Buy a second copy. <laughs> For a pen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, do you want to have I do, hey, really quickly, because I'd like yeah, to get some more. Yeah, so, sure. um, so yeah, Tori, you're right. So I think that the, there is a tradition, both in economics and law, of thinking of the situation with an emphasis on its interpretive, cultural, constructed components and its material, <coughs> systemic nature. Um, and I'm on one side in both fields. Uh, but it's also, I think, true with respect to law, that there is a tendency among economists to find it hard to remember the range of, e of legal differences that could set markets in motion in different ways. Um, so yes, you know, with slavery, without slavery, there are some big examples like that. But the, but the, the idea that the, 
and yeah, there could be more than one equilibrium, and there could be more than they could be equally efficient, if you, but with different growth trajectories or different inequality um, profiles as a result of different legal arrangements is easier for lawyers to remember because we do it all the time, and harder for economists to remember sometimes in conversation. So I, you know, but that seems right. Um, um, Andrew, on the so, I don't think of knowledge work as generating systems. I think of it as generating what we might, in future knowledge work, predict <coughs> to be irregularity. It's kind of an odd way of putting it, but I'm a kind of Oliver Wendell Holmes guy in this. That the, you know, the, the decisions of judges are what we mean by law, and nothing more sophisticated. And what we're doing when a lawyer says to a client what the law is, is making a prediction about what a judge will actually decide. So when you say the power rests here and he has that authority, you're predicting that if the person tried to do that, they would get away with it. And, you, and, and that's what is actually going on. You're, and you might be, by saying it, reinforcing the fact that it's true, drawing attention to the fact that it's true, and making it less true, there could be many effects of, of the saying that somebody has power over something or somebody has responsibility for something. They might not want to have responsibility for it. They might not want to be said to have responsibility for it. Somebody else might get mobilized to attack them. Many things could happen as a result of that. But regularities emerge, and I'm very interested in regularities, particularly when they, I think of them as unjust regularities. So how are distributive inequalities reproduced is a different kind of question. The mechanism <coughs> of the reproduction of distributional inequalities that are predictively reliable, then how does this, is there a system of poverty and wealth, right? So, and one aspect of it is that I, I do see the poverty of some people as related to the wealth of other people because I see the outcome of their relative wealth as a product of a struggle and an interaction where there was no particular reason why the money ought to have gone to one person rather than another other than some prediction about a settled outcome of a prior struggle. So in that sense, I'm, I don't want to, I want to say knowledge work has effects and regularities that can be predicted are generated, but I hesitate if, to call it the generation of a system. So, but maybe it would be useful, but I think it would be helpful if we as social scientists just stopped for 10 years saying that. If we can come back to it, it would be useful, but it's become so much of a crutch to call it a system or an institution rather than to try to actually say what works and what we're predicting and who's doing what and why they're getting it, um, that I would be, it's kind of a tonic to try to focus on it. Um, do, does knowledge work construct the people who are doing it? For sure. So, I mean, you know, I knew Barack Obama when he was playing the role of a student, and he did it very well. He was a good, he was great, and then he became the president. Well, or actually the body named Barack Obama had this new job. Is he speaking the presidency, or is the presidency speaking him? Well, you only have to listen to him for five minutes and realize the presidency is speaking him. So, there is some um, powerful way in which knowledge work is the coming into role of, of people as they try to get things done. And their reasoning is in part the putting on of an identity. And I would say that's true of feminists too. I mean, uh, and of uh, people who put on the identity of victim or put on the identity of, of uh, outsider. Um, 
It's true of terrorists. So, I mean, there's no clearer way of demonstrating that you are against the universal established order than to take a few journalists and behead them on TV and put it on YouTube. And you quickly communicate, I am the other. And you come into the role of the other and you, you have attracted to you all the things that happen when that happens. Um, I wrote down here, expert reach. Why did I write that down? That was your third point. What was it? Oh, no, the response. Oh, response. Yeah, yeah. Expert response. I can't read my own handwriting. So um, my, what's my dream? Uh, my, my idea in a lot of what I've written is, is that people would understand their expertise and their knowledge work in a different and more sophisticated way, and people who had a crude version and where people with good heart would have a more sophisticated version. So it's a, I'd love it if people who wanted to do good things understood better how the world worked and did them better. That'd be cool. Um, but the direct argument is that there's an aspect of all expert work which is responsibility avoiding. Uh, that a common element in the in, in interpreting a context for decision <coughs> is that people say, when I decide it was the either the interpretation or the context that made me do it. I had to kill this person because it was in the national interest. I had to kill this person because I was legally entitled or whatever, or they committed a crime. So it's not me. You know, it ain't me, babe. It's my expertise. It's my role. It's my so people are the product of the vector of forces of the context as they interpret it, and the knowledge of their expertise. But they're not actually free deciders. So that that an as this would be part of an aspect of technocracy that I think is true not only of Brussels technocrats, but you know, kind of of my grandmother too, is, the, uh, is a loss of the experience of ethical jeopardy among people who are trying to figure out what to do as they think, finally, I've got it right, given my interpretation of the context or whatever. And that that feeling is a denial of the irrationality of the situation and of the kind of ethical jeopardy that goes with acting in an, in an ethically uncertain and irrational situation, and I would hope that I would be <coughs> saying to experts, wake up. It's, it's you. It's not, this is a, a situation of decision in which there is some opportunity for the bearing of the responsible burden of getting doing that, not simply knowing what to do and interpreting the situation right. So all of us are spin doctors, but none of us are political actors. And all of politics has become a kind of practice of prediction about the other rather than an assessment, you know, in a Weberian sense with passion and engagement and risk of the consequences of action. That was the sermon part. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make one short observation. I feel the gap between David Nye uh, uh, is growing as he's talking. Surely <laughs> <laughs> those roles are embedded in some, some normative system structure order which does uh, in some way replicate itself through time. So the role of president is embedded in a kind of normative environment. So the model I prefer is something closer to Bourdieu which is where you think about actors as card players or actors on the stage, 
who can ad lib, they can play the game better or worse, they can maybe innovate in the game, but to some degree the rules of the game or the script and the structure of the performance is set for them. And there's a limit to the plasticity. There are some things you can't, you know, you can't start speaking Chaucerian English in a Shakespeare play. You know, you might get away with it once, but then the structure itself would prevent you from doing this. So, so I'm more comfortable with a picture which says there is more, a bit more plasticity than any structural or determinist account would suggest. But there is some, there are normative constraints to what performance you can play, and some people are better or worse at that. But, in, but I, the radical plasticity, I just... I mean, I sort of see it intellectually that, in theory, people could maybe make different choices or say different things, or, but that somehow what's thinkable and unthinkable is more embedded in the normative structure well, we socialised into. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I just... I wouldn't use the word normative, because I, I don't know what that means exactly, but... I mean, the example I give in international law is you're not allowed... And I use this model to talk about the exclusion of heterodox position. You, when you go to try to do something on the global stage, you're not allowed to say, God said this was what I should do. And you're not allowed to say, I have more power and I'm going to take it. But you can say a lot of things that lie kind of close to those things and somewhere between them. You can say, well, but the values of the universal whatever as agreed to by civilized whatever... Um, and the common in all of the religions of however, and, and you can say, it, it, it's a, so the practice of the most popular in my <coughs> history and conquest, so you can get close, but you can't say those, those things. So, no, but I don't see that as normative. I see that as one of the aspects of this peculiar discipline, and I've learned a lot from Bourdieu and trying to figure out how to talk about that, that, yeah. that could be different. I mean, it could be that in 25 years, it will be a completely normal mainstream thing to say, God told me I could have it, as a thing for nations to say in their diplomatic relations with one another. And there'd be a whole set of conditions under which you try to assess, did he really or she really, and whatever, say it, and do you really have it? And they would turn into an expert practice, the interpretation of what God said could become uh, international legal thing, well, it could easily happen. It has happened before, and it could happen again. And right now, it hasn't happened. So, if that's what you mean, I'm totally with you. If you mean that that's when people say it comes out of history, or it's material, or it's normative, I think they always they're kind of like adding more weight to it than I would say. Yeah, yeah it comes out of history. It's it, so. It, I'll say it. It comes out of history. It's very material, and it's quite normative. But it's also something people did over time, and it's a, and it might not be true tomorrow because it could turn out that tomorrow somebody says God gave it to me, and everybody said yields. It might. We just so the human situation is one in which history and context and institutions that have weight, but we in social science shouldn't spend our time trying to overstate that weight. We should spend our time trying to unpack it. But rather than yield, what happens a lot of time is people fight back very aggressively. Yeah, it also happens, which can solidify the thing or undo it, and you know, all kinds of things happen. I don't know how long we've got because you've taken your watch away and put it on your wrist again. So, so we, we've got we've got five minutes. I wanted to ask you about about decision make uh, about decisions about the idea th this really strong idea that comes through I in the book about somehow. A certain form of uh, of expertise uh, is also a form of evasion. That we we don't take responsibility. The decisions elsewhere, and so on and so forth. Um, 
But of course, we've had a class of political experts, politicians, who sort of rejected that, and we didn't like them very much. So the decision makers, the person, the, you know, George Bush called himself the decision the maker. I am the decider. And Tony Blair, you know, went back and forth between your model of the expert and the decision makers. At one point, he said, you know, I, we invade Iraq because I'm convinced it's the right thing to do. There is no elsewhere here. There's no uh, expert realm that I can rely on. I, I'm I'm taking the decision. And then a bit later, he said. Um, uh, actually, I was probably wrong about a whole bunch of things, but at least there were these Security Council resolutions. So that would be your your your, your model of the expert. I just wondered how these t these ideas are related to each other. And, and and my second question was actually a bit of a sort of you know, question about how you responded to Davos man on encountering him. So. Um, you know, my, my reading and experience of people who enter worlds is that they usually end up liking the people in them much more than they expected to. So you, you, you seem to have had a similar experience with the military that I had. You sort of go there having all sorts of preconceptions about the military, Vietnam War and so on. And then you, you meet them and they're like, hey, they're so intelligent and they're humanitarians and they know how to use law and they're so plastic and they're sophisticated and they, just, they have just the right amount of disenchantment. Um, so I wondered if, if that's, that was the experience you had with, with Davos Man, if it was the experience that you had with experts in general, or whether you got angrier with them the, the longer you were exposed to them through the writing so and research uh, of the book. To, so first on the decision thing. So my line on that is that um, it's a general phenomenon of expertise that it avoids the experience of deciding mm. by attributing the decision to something else. However, there's a practice of expert work that's attributing or asserting responsibility in which you say, you really decided that, mm -hmm. which I'm saying in order to say I didn't decide it or in order to hold you accountable or to let you hang out to dry or for whatever purpose. And you might say about yourself, I decided, in order to assert your authority and mm -hmm. I'm not some you know, weirdo person who relies on experts. I'm really mm. macho man here. I actually, in my own mind, it was Cheney who told me to do it, but I'm not going to say that. So there's a. Th I don't think that practice has anything to do with the actual practice mm. of taking responsibility that I'm talking about. That's mm. a, another discursive practice that people undertake for a reason to have an effect. Mm in terms of how other people perceive them or what happens in the next round or who they're going to hold accountable for something or whatever. So one, so that would just be, mm -hmm. have to be a footnote to my earlier statement that one of the practices of evasion is the practice of saying I'm not evading <coughs> and I'm now attributing and I'm now responsibilizing and I'm now imprisoning. We found out who is really responsible for this mess and now they're going to jail. So anti-corruption mm -hmm. would be a classic case of that. We're fighting corruption. We found it. Corruption is everywhere. And he's the guy first who needs to go to prison. That's a practice. Uh, and, um, and so is the practice of, you know, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. That's mm -hmm. a, a, the opposite of the I'm the decider. And it's also something that's very well known mm -hmm. as a knowledge practice of power. Um, did I like them? And it, it, um, yeah, I like everybody. So I... I, I I, I, I mean, I never go in there thinking that I can like the people, and, the, and people, I really like everybody. So, and I, but the fact that I find them doubled 
mm-hmm. agnostic, sophisticated, disenchanted, um, as well as human and humanitarian, um, it doesn't, I mean, that makes me like them more, I suppose, but it also, I, I see that as a much more, uh, a much stronger indictment of their practice. Mm-hmm. So it would be an interesting critique of the world if it turned out there was some group of people who were just terrible. And tragically, they were in charge of everything. <laughs> and if smart people like us, who are really sophisticated, were in charge of things, they would, we wouldn't have all these problems. So you have to go find the bad people and put good people there. Uh, the bad people might be technocrats, you need politicians, or they might be politicians, you need technocrats, whatever it is, you get the balance right, and then you have a constitution and so forth. Mm. My sense is, it's not like that. The practices of the reproduction of bad effects in the world is the result of really nice people doing really wonderful things and trying their best within vernaculars of decision that are, by and large, humane in their aspiration and articulation. And the result is catastrophic. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's, it's a really hard thing to get one's mind around that everybody who's, you know, ruining the climate is trying to save the climate. It's not just something they say in their ads, it's something they also think and have a whole discourse about. And that the reproduction of inequality is very often something that happens through the practices of people who are very attentive to that. And so on. That war is undertaken by people whose big thing is not to have war and to restrain war and to be, and then they mangle all these people's bodies and destroy all these societies. So that I've been moved by that phenomenon and trying to make that visible. Um, I like all the people who are destroying our world and and reproducing an unjust society, um, and we should do something about us. Well, what a great way to end. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we will end there with a spontaneous <laughs> round of applause. <laughs> uh, seriously, thank you all very much for attending. Thank you, David, for attending to those uh, questions so uh, intelligently and wittily. And thank you to our three commentators for enlivening the evening. It's been absolutely terrific. So thank you all. podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening.